0: Comrades, it's episode 185 of This Machine Kills, your premium episode for this week. And once again, Ed, I'm I'm, I'm fucking pissed at you, man. I'm so so mad at Ed right now, making me read about the shit that we're going to be talking about today. I wish (laughs) I didn't want to know about these people. I didn't want to know about this movement. I didn't want to know about this man. Uh, (laughs) But I now know way too much and have thought way too much about it. Folks, I'm sorry to say we are talking about effective altruism today. We are talking about long-termism today. We are talking about the figurehead, the man behind the movement, William McCaskill today. Um, If you have not heard any of those three uh, uh, words or nouns uh, recently then count yourself lucky I don't know how you've escaped this man's media PR blitz for the last I like know. month or two um, you know even got, for, he even got
1: vice
0: even got vice he got he got vice he got you <laughs> Ed. <the laughs> he, he got, got an interview
1: he did an interview with basic the basic books I think I don't know what the deal behind it was but I saw him doing an interview of his book that comes out that came out yesterday what do we owe the future?
0: Yeah. So William McCaskill is the author of, yeah, this new book, what we owe the future. And he's the kind of, he's the, the, you know, one of the founders and, and the main figurehead leader of the effective altruism movement, which is now focusing on long termism. Um, and with this new book, uh, the center for effective altruism, which is based out of Oxford. I mean, we'll talk about, they own a, uh, uh, an abbey that I think was built, Wytham Abbey that was built in like 1480, uh, this palatial estate that that the Center for Effective Altruism bought and is now their home base. And they have been also just running a, a, a PR blitz at a scale that like is truly unlike unseen uh, for me like like I just haven't seen something like this like so inorganic as well like it's not because it's you know some runaway you know it's not because it's like a president wrote a book okay or it's not because it's like some like like unexpected organic runaway success. Um, this is like totally artificial, totally uh, bought and paid for, planted advertisements. But we're talking, yeah. I mean, on top of Vice, right? With they did a sponsored uh, like a video interview with him. Uh, there is also tons of other stuff that is unclear what the advertorial relationship is. Um, with with this stuff, none of the none of the profile, like we're talking, you know, interviews for like the New York Times, right? It was on Ezra Klein's podcast, you mm-hmm. know. Um, we're talking cover stories NPR. for Time Magazine, yeah. NPR, massive profile that we'll go that we'll talk about in the New York, the Yorker. Atlantic,
1: the Atlantic. Yeah. I mean, it's literally. I I honestly, not. I'm thinking about. It. I think it's literally every major legacy or major uh, newspaper. And I think also he did, yeah, he did the New York times op-ed like two weeks ago. Right. And also he did one at BBC. Yeah. He's got a New York
0: times op-ed. It's literally everything. BBC. He's also got an article and a podcast interview in foreign policy. Like, it, it's, it's literally everywhere. Like, like you cannot escape it. And none of the, the only the vice one is the one i is the only one I've seen that has explicitly marked itself as an advertised, like advertorial, paid-for interview, kind of sponsored content. None of the other interviews, profiles, op-eds, podcasts, all of that, like cover stories, none of this stuff that has all come out all at once in the last like month or two, um, really the last month. Um, Really, the last two weeks. Um, You know, none of that other stuff I've seen has marked itself as advertising, as advertised or paid for or anything. Uh, Basic books, yes, they're a big publisher, but they don't do stuff like this. This is way beyond like even their marketing push for a book that they suspect will be a big major hit. Like, this has got to be. This, like the Center for Effective Altruism, which we'll talk about, is bankrolled by, um, uh, Dustin Moskelitz, I think his name is, and, and his, and his wife, Carrie Tuna, who Dustin was one of the co found, early co founders of Facebook and therefore has like billions of dollars and has pledged along with his wife, Carrie, to, uh, you know, give away all of their wealth, the kind of Warren Buffett pledge. And they, they have founded numerous, you know, Philan- they founded like Open Philanthropy. Uh, it's just kind of Silicon Valley, like Open AI style, like charity and stuff. And and uh, I think from what I've seen, they have like $30 billion they're trying to give away and they've put the Center for Effective Altruism and therefore William McCaskill in charge of giving away this $30 billion. Uh, and I, I, I can only imagine that's where... The money for this just fucking unprecedented media blitz for his new book, What We Owe the Future, is coming from. Hey, he got us. I mean, we're not getting paid, but we are talking about it. <laughs> should, should be getting paid.
1: <laughs> you know, we're getting paid in some... I'm sure if you did the utilitarian math that we're getting paid Well, this somehow. is
0: a Patreon episode, so you oh, know, yeah, indirectly. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> there you go. Uh, there you go. The math reveals itself.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where to start because at, like every, every aspect of this effective altruism shit that you've made me read, Ed, I'm, I'm putting the blame on you. This this is going in a tick in the utilitarian ledger the, of, of the universe. Um, this is going in a, in the tick of the, of the bad side for you because of the pain and harm you have, you have caused me. <laughs>
1: You know, it is a, it is a psychically damaging and, and painful thing to read. But I do think it is important because, you know, here we want to break down the political economy of Silicon Valley. And increasingly, a lot of them are being pulled in by ideologies that are connected to effective altruism. Effective altruism and the network that comes out of, um, of William McCaskill and other guest stars who we'll see show up. We have the Rationalist Network, um, which is connected to uh, Slate Star Codex, and that in of itself is connected to various media institutions, writers, uh, thinkers. Less wrong. You know, less wrong. Like um, These people underwrite, inform, or inspire a great deal of discourse and elite media, decision-making. I mean, people
0: as diverse as Peter Till, uh, Sam Altman, Elon Musk, all count themselves as effective altruist as EA or Mm -hmm. now long-termism adherents.
1: Individuals who play with capital, individuals who play with ideas. I mean, these are ideas that definitely matter and we should dive in them because the worldview is abhorrent i think when you really dig down into it 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 has a seductive rhetoric and uh, um argumentation to it but um i mean i don't know don't the, some of the last people on this planet you should trust are oxford philosophers but that you know it is uh it makes for <laughs> it makes for a good um thing to read and you know one thing i'm definitely gonna be doing is i am i bought his uh his uh, first two books or the first book and what we owe the future. And I am tempted, you know, I was already working on a book review for other uh, Silicon Valley thinkers, but I'm tempted to like either replace it with this or to do like a two part book review for them, because I am very fascinated. There's so many things going on here, right? There's, uh, and we'll talk about them all in the episode. There's, there's effective altruism and it's rationalist connection. There's the evolution of, effective altruism or whether or not it was an evolution at all. It's the ways in which it has a certain view of politics and society and what ideologies those line up with. Uh, You know, there's so it's a very rich thing, but it is also deeply painful. It's like looking, I don't know, like what's an, some sort of, there's some Greek story, I'm sure where you just like look into something and you're blinded with knowledge. And that's what, you know, that's what you're going to get to do with us today. (laughs) Uh, You
0: said, and and William McCaskill's first book, which came out in 2015, was called uh, Doing Good Better Effective Altruism uh, and a Radical New Way to Make a Difference.
1: We could even start there, probably. You know, you've got a chance to sit with that. that review. Maybe we could talk about some of the, or, uh, the elementary seeds of his ideas.
0: Mm, I think that is a I, that's exactly. I agree. I think in order to in order to orient us, because there, there is so much for us to get into. Uh, And we could really be pulled in so many directions. But I think to orient us, we really need to have an understanding of what is effective altruism and, you know, what's its basis? What's, what is this ideology? Um, and it really is. It, It, it's an ideology. And as I will, Uh, argue you know it's an it's a religion it's a rationalist religion in in a lot of ways that's what what it has become and and we can trace its evolution or as you hint to that maybe not so much evolution in reality to its new and its latest incarnation at least in name of long-termism um, but you know what is effective altruism? Then you 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 talked about you just described it as seductive. I think that's right, but I think it's seductive in a a, a way that um, it is based in a simple mindedness, right? A simple mindedness in terms of 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 one's own ability to be wowed by uh, simple ideas that are packaged up as very eloquent. Uh, you know, it, it, it's simplicity is mistaken for an eloquent, uh, eloquency, um, which is therefore mistaken as a, as a, 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 truth, a universal truth. Um, and it's simple-minded as well in the sense I'm not fully convinced that um, all of these people's skulls have fully uh, formed. <laughs> I think they still have some soft patches. <laughs> we're taking out. We're
1: taking out the calipers
0: today, folks. <laughs> <laughs> not fren- not phrenologically, I just mean uh, you know developmentally. <laughs> <Right. laughs> They've got soft yeah, no, patches <laughs> in their head.
2: <laughs> these guys remind me of like the type of people that you see driving luxury vehicles with like a Grateful Dead sticker on the back. Like I mean, the old boys of summer song, <laughs> you know, it's like it's all a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac.
1: I think they literally are those people. You know
2: yeah. I
0: think? It's, a, it's a defense contractor who has a peace sign on right. his uh, on his on his back window. Like literally that that sounds like a joke, but that is literally Imagine what like as we'll get into no effective altruism would actually recommend that you become something like. Uh, you know, maybe not a defense contractor now because they got blowback for that, but a management consultant. Yeah, um, and the most peace loving management most, consultant. The most ethical
1: thing someone can do is work for McKinsey for five years.
0: <laughs> Literally, this is what they what they believe, and they and 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 Willie McCaskill has like a foundation or a, or and a podcast that's part of the Center for Effective Altruism called Eighty Thousand Hours, which is m- supposedly named after the number. The the, the average number of hours a person will work in their life, and the the basis of that kind of like initiative is to coach and advise people into taking jobs as financiers, management consultants, like engineer, like Silicon Valley uh, engineers, um, high paying jobs. In other words, um, and then donate large chunks of their money to, uh, effective charities, uh, and that, and that is the most morally righteous thing that you can do in, in, in society, uh, literally. So, all right, we're getting ahead of ourselves here because there's so much. <laughs> what is effective altruism? It, uh, effective altruism has its origins in a text that any intro to philosophy student, um, will have read, will have thought about, probably will have been seduced by. Um, and then, you know, at some point, they forget about it, they grow out of it, or they become a professional philosopher and never leave the the, the mind palace they've constructed for themselves, which is what William McCaskill did. That essay, of course, is Peter Singer's 1972 uh, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, which is really the kind of starting point for the modern contemporary utilitarianism uh, belief uh, ideology, movement—you know, this is the. And this is the essay that uh, has has a famous thought experiment. Not the Charlie problem that comes from another uh, person, another philosopher, uh, uh, Philippa Foot, and it was mainly actually used as a that the Charlie problem was used as this kind of critique or intuition critique of utilitarianism. But uh, Sing, Peter Singer's essay. Uh, it has this, has the idea of the drowning child, right? In other words, so the, the thought experiment here is that if you were walking to class one day and you came across a pond and in that pond there was a drowning child, you'd save the child, right? You would make a calculation that says, well, the inconvenience of, I, you know, I would miss my class, um, that inconvenience, the inconvenience of, uh, getting my clothes wet, getting myself wet, getting cold, being uncomfortable as I wade into this this uh, pond to save this drowning child. You've made a, a calculation implicitly or explicitly, quickly, uh, you know, so, uh, unconsciously or not. Um, the harm that comes to you for saving this child is well worth, well outweighed. Uh, is outweighed by the benefit that comes from saving the child, right? That's a utilitarian calculation. Now, if we take a, if we abstract away from that, all of the spatial, temporal, emotional, in other words, things that utilitarians would say are fundamentally amoral features, right? Doesn't what matters is the morality of your action saving the child. It does. What does not factor into that is that, um, you know, it. It's happening right in front of you. It doesn't matter if you know the child or not, right? Are they your niece or are they a stranger? Uh, it doesn't matter if it's happening on the other side of town or right in front of you. doesn't matter if it's happening later in the day or right now. What matters is the the moral act and moral decision to save the child or not save the child. And therefore, if we take that argument and that conclusion it's functionally the same if you, every time you decide not to save a child in Africa, for example, as the argument always goes, uh, in Ethiopia, as they often drill down, right? Really kind of uh, dating it, telling you the time <laughs> that these thought experiments are coming from, right? Every Every time you decide not to take an action, directly or indirectly, doing it yourself or say by donating to charity that's going to do it on your behalf. Every time you make a decision not to save a similarly uh, drowning child, drowning here could mean going hungry, sick, right? Any other life-threatening situation. Then morally, it's the same as if you had decided not to save that drowning child in the pond who you happen to stumble upon. That is the utilitarian thought experiment here. From that is the foundation of, uh, of a kind of modern, contemporary, radical utilitarianism um, that effective altruism is built on. What do you think of that, Ed?
1: I'm going I'm to hold my thoughts because we have some utilitarian listeners. I'm going to hold my thoughts for but I'm not a fan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, William McCaskill, when he was a undergrad who stumbled, who came across this essay, as I said, a lot of undergrads have. I did my undergrad in philosophy. I didn't start as philosophy. I started as polymer chemistry major. Then a couple no. years in, I took some philosophy classes, got similarly seduced by the ideas, but also just liked thinking about these this side of things more than the other
1: side. And I will say, Peter Singer... Uh, i did also one we re- one reason why uh utilitarianism did seem seductive is you know singer was probably the first person i ever came across who was like animals mm. crazy how they yeah. don't have rights crazy right. how yeah. we just just exterminate them at will and enslave them when we keep them around right well i mean enslave is a I mean, not the, quite the right word to use, but that our relationship to animals is one of domination and extermination in almost all instances.
0: This is true. I mean, he did write the book Animal Liberation in the
1: yeah. 70s as well, which is really the
0: birth point of the modern animal rights movement of vegetarianism as a kind of ethical movement. Um, you know, true. I mean, the man has had massive impact for sure. Mm-hmm. and And similarly, his essays like famine, affluence, and morality have had a lot of impact as well. I mean, I remember being like William McCaskill, an undergrad philosophy student coming across these ideas, coming across other ideas like virtue ethics, right? Reading the Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, uh, you know, coming across uh, deontology, you know, Kant, right? And it's essentially, right, coming across a menu of ethical belief systems and ideologies, um, and then th- having this, this this smorgasbord of morality to choose from. Ooh, I'll sample a little Kant, I'll sample a mm. little Bentham, <laughs> I'll have a little Aristotle for dessert, and then I will come up with, and then I will choose what's my favorite, right? <laughs> what, what do I want to adhere to? What set of beliefs do I want to um, call my own? This is this is really how like undergrad philosophy operates, and for a lot of people, right, they get uh, utilitarianism is very seductive because it's very simple. It makes sense. There's a calculation that happens. It also seems very rational. Philosophy students more often than not want to see themselves as supremely rational, right? And so there's a kind of uh, uh, so there is a seductive quality here. But not everybody takes it to the extreme that William McCaskill did, right? He read this essay um, and decided, I mean, to be fair, I read these essays and became a vegetarian for nine years. So, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you mm -hmm. know, so so they, they actually do, you know, beliefs have impacts on actions 100%. Um and you know, William McCaskill did something similar, but not only did he become you know, vegan, taking it a step further, uh, he had the zeal of a convert, right? And I and I, I choose those words uh intentionally, as we'll get into, but to the point where he began to uh essentially take a vow of poverty, um, to you know, donate his Oxford stipend uh, to charities, right? Do a lot of research in terms of what's the most effective charity, right? How can I do the most good for my dollar? How can I get the most moral bang for my economic buck? Uh, And that's where the effective part came in, right? He kind of started marrying, you know, this was already part of the Singarian utilitarianism, singer would explicitly talk about, and he has a new book out actually right now. I see um, Peter Singer is Australian and he used to actually be a professor at my university that I work at Monash. Um, and so I see train ads for like big billboard train ads for Peter Singer's new book, which is all about like what charities are the best to donate your money to basically, right? Like some charities are, you know, a hundred or hundreds or thousands of times more effective per dollar donated than other charities. And so this was already part of it, but uh, William McCaskill started taking it to a much greater extent where not only really marrying empiricism and especially an economic empiricism. Looking at doing a, a, a actuarial calculations of quality-adjusted life years, qualities, which are a, a, a metric that can be used to compare the economic well. It's for it's used in welfare economics to be able to compare interventions to save, say, uh, a, a blind person versus someone with um, uh, worms. Right, uh, para, you know, stomach parasites. Right, if you were to uh, invest or donate a uh, hundred dollars, $1, a thousand dollars, how many quality-adjusted life years could you gain? In other words, how many you know, how many life years could be added to the total sum of human of humans' life years uh, in a you know quality sense? So one being. Uh, living a a life and 100% perfect health, zero being dead, uh, every fraction in between being some, you know, uh, I've seen some calculations that say that a a blind person is, lives at a 0.51 quality adjusted life years. In other words, in terms of welfare economics, a blind person is worth about half as much as a, as a, as a not blind person living at 100% health, right? And so, this is this kind of like some cold moral actuarial calculations you have to start making in order to determine what's the most effective way for my altruistic actions to add more qualities, more quality adjusted life years to the planet and to, um, you know, to the future. Than other ways. And so this is where, you know, they start the, this is where the rationalist gets in and EAs love to, you know, correct each other on their numbers. Ed, you said that the most effective way would be to donate pest uh, insecticide covered bed nets, you know, um, to prevent people from getting malaria. However, your calculations were wrong. If you look at my calculations, you'll see that the most effective uh, source of of donation or the most effective place to donate your money is um, deworming medication for people uh, in Africa instead of bed nets. And then I'll say... Uh, QED, uh, my argument is better and then you will have no choice but to say you are correct, I was wrong and I will now uh, redirect all of my donations away from bed nets to uh, deworming medication, right? Like this is the kind of minutia that the effective altruists get into but on top of that, it's not self-oriented. It is in the sense that it's hyper-individualistic, right? Every person is responsible to do their, to do their own good. Um, it's not a collective endeavor, except it is a movement of individuals, um, in the sense that what William McCaskill does take it one step further and begin inducing people, convincing people, cajoling people, guilting people into making a, uh, Give what you can. Pledge of you know give it, of tithing, literally tithing. Right, you should you know, give at least ten percent of your income to charity. And you could you should also do you know if you can what William McCaskill, what another Australian philosopher, Toby Ord, uh, Ord has done, which is to make a pledge of giving everything that you have above. Uh, a threshold of, in William McCaskill's case, twenty thousand pounds a year. In Toby Ord's place, uh, I think it's eighteen or nineteen thousand pounds a year. They donate everything uh, above uh, uh, all their income and assets above that to uh, to charities, right? So, so this is the beginning of the effective altruism movement. It, it is, in other words, a very extreme, radical reading of. Singarian, uh, contemporary utilitarianism, which is also not content with being a, uh, uh, you know, a kind of taking your own vow of, of poverty, um, but also creating a movement around getting other people to buy into, to be part of the community, to adhere to the ideology, to, to tithe, um, and donate their money uh, uh, and the Center for Effective Altruism that William McCaskill eventually founded has become the primary institution and intermediary for this movement. It's a lot there. It's a there's a lot there. I think we needed to set that foundation for the ideology before we really get into like what it looks like in practice, right? Like what? Like who are these people? What are they actually doing? Like we know what the ideology is, but man, they're essentially speed running like the like Christianity <laughs> in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> like like it's really quite wild. Uh, To see the way that, like, they're compressing hundreds of years of, like, moralistic zeal zeal uh, zealots, authoritarian decadence, sectarian conflicts um, into, like, 15 years.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I think then, so, from here, where should we go? Should we start with, should we start with McCaskill's work, with his, with the evolution of his thought? Should we go a little bit? As we've we've laid out the basics of what effective altruism is, how how it thinks through things, kind of talk through the beginnings of McCaskill's th- thought. I mean, he adheres initially to this pretty strict understanding of well, you want to do the things that ensure the most qualities, right? But there are threads and seeds in his early days that lend themselves to a certain articulation of EA that, like, say, Peter Singer never would have done.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's get into that, and let's also get into as we do so some of the like really quite absurd conclusions that that the logic of this
1: uh, belief system forces you to to lead to. Maybe the ba- maybe it is uh, it makes sense to uh, we'll we'll start with McCaskill's more recent sort of PR tr- uh, PR blitz. A specific, I mean, there are a lot of, a good chunk of it is literally just him writing. I mean, if you, he's got pieces in the Atlantic, he's got a piece in um, the New York Times, he's got a piece in BBC, he's got an interview in ER, um, he's got an interview in uh, New York Times podcast, he's got a pretty like long extended um, discussion with uh, Wired, uh, uh, with Wired's uh, Matt Reynolds, Um. So he's everywhere, right? There's New Yorker profile I think is probably the longest and most interesting. I think um, of the looks. You know, you can read if you want to read his stuff. There's a million articulations of his ideas, but the New Yorker piece of him is like a classic New Yorker piece that dives really, 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 really deep. uh, Starting with you know, sort of the early. Uh, manifestation of it right mccaskill comes to us transfigured
0: it's called the reluctant prophet of effective
1: altruism for, for for listeners right william mccaskill's movement set out to help the global poor now his followers fret about runaway ai have they seen our threats clearly or lost their way um now this piece does a and lays out a few things, which you know we'll probably we'll flag them as we go through. But the you know some of the main hits and and things to consider. Right, McCaskill comes up a, a very sort of bright bright boy. You know, um, from Glasgow, he goes to Cambridge. Or, uh, no, he goes to Oxford. Sorry, he's reading philosophy at Cambridge. He gets an opportunity to do that. But goes to Oxford as a graduate student. Becomes one of the youngest lecturers, I think, in the world for philosophy at that level. Yeah, he becomes 20 like, a,
0: yeah, like supposedly the youngest philosophy professor because he's currently an associate professor at Oxford and is like the youngest philosophy professor at that level and, in, 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 you know, ever or whatever. So, real
1: Wonderkin, Doogie Hauser type. Right. <laughs> right. You know, there it's. It's very clear that Pete, that Peter Singer's idea, his theory, this idea that any expenditure beyond basic survival is basically taking food out of someone else's mouth or essentially redirecting resources so, such that people in the global south die was one that also needed to, was something that felt right and needed to be pushed harder. But people were reluctant to accept that, to say the least. So he begins with, you know, the, the tithe idea. As Dathan uh, pointed out, you know, there are a lot of religious uh, overtones that will manifest later. But, you know, one of the more immediate ones is they believe, because there's some cultural valence here, that it makes sense to just say, hey, 10% of your poverty uh, or 10% of your wages should go to helping someone in extreme poverty, right? Um, in, the, in the profile, McCaskill tells the interviewer, I would quote them back to themselves, you know, if someone in extreme poverty dies, it's as if you killed them yourself, and other really severe pronouncements, and say, So would you like to sign? Singer said yes, but almost everyone else said no. So this leads to him creating, along with his friend Ord, um, I believe his name's Terry Ord. Um, Toby,
0: I think. Toby
1: at Ord. Um, Create Much better name, Toby Ord. Yeah, Yeah, I am sorry for butchering your name, Ord, because that is a better name. (laughs) They they create uh, giving what we can, right? Uh, Which is uh, basically everyone's more or less signing up for a pledge, taking this vow of relative poverty, pushing or trying to develop and cultivate effective altruism among people. The piece points out, which I think is an interesting point, that effective altruism is something that has developed independently multiple times, right? The way they articulated is like agriculture, echolation, and the river dolphin. The practice that would become effective altruism emerged independently in different places at around the same time. Insofar as there was a common ancestor, it was Peter Singer. Holden Karnofsky and Ellie Hasenfield... Young analysts at the hedge fund Bridgewater Associates formed a club to identify the most fruitful giving opportunities, one that relied not on crude heuristics, but on hard data. That club grew into an organization called Give Well, which determined that, for example, the most cost effective way to save a human life was to give approximately $4,000 to the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes insect- insecticide treated bed nets. In the Bay Area, rationalist community, a tech-adjacent online subculture devoted to hawkish logic and quarrelsome empiricism, bloggers converged on similar ideas. Eliezer Eliezer Yudowski, one of the group's patriarchs, instructed his followers to, quote, purchase fuzzies and utilians separately, end quote. It was a fine to tutor at-risk kids or volunteer in a soup kitchen as long as you assign those activities to a column marked self-interest. The pursuit of a warm glow should be separated from doing the most impartial good.
0: I want to. I want to uh, expand on that real quick by what he means by fuzzies and utilitons mm-hmm. is the is the word. And you are forgiven uh, for not knowing how to say that because you should never have to uh, see that word <laughs> in your life. <laughs> so, by fuzzies, he means the the warm fuzzy feeling, right? Like mm-hmm. again, it's that idea that morality should be as coldly distant from emotion as possible right these are two uh two separate spheres and 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 emotion should not have an influence on morality so and utilitons is the utilitarian metric for benefit right so you so the idea like qualies quality adjusted life years, the idea is to create to make up uh, something called utilitons which is an, a metric to judge every action by how many utilitons or how much benefit does this uh, uh, you know how much good uh, does this add to the utilitarian calculation so that so in other words purchase your fuzzies and utilitons separate right like get your warm fuzzy feeling somewhere else um, but when you're when you're doing morality you need to be focusing on the, the calculation of maximizing
1: utilitons. On the science. On the science. That's right. Of it. And so we get to t- late 2011. It's about the same time as the Occupy movement. And McCaskill gives this talk at Oxford called Doctor, NGO, Worker, or something else entirely. Uh, which careers do the most good? And so this is the year that he launches 80,000 hours. It's an offshoot of giving what we can. It offers ethical life optimization. So this is advice to undergraduates. Uh, where you earn to give, right? Uh, he, ex- you know, and as they write in the piece, his advice, be- which became known as earning to give, was that you, and the you as explicitly high caliber students at elite institutions, could become a doctor in a poor country and possibly save the equivalent of 140 lives in your medical career. Or you could take a job in finance or consulting and by donating intelligently, save 10 times as many. And so he's giving people advice, you know, there was a a really interesting example, there's this young Oxonian, her name is Habiba Islam. She's at this talk, she's the head of Amnesty International at the university. She's volunteering at the local homeless shelter in Oxford. She's, you know, in circles that are committed to climate change all this before she gets in, involved with effective altruism and political and you know the in the 80 hours 80,000 hours she's considering a political career they estimate that you have a if you you know you graduate from Oscar with a PPE you have a 130 chance of becoming an MP
0: politics and economics yeah. degree. Mm-hmm.
1: and so instead of graduate instead of you know graduating with a PPE and pursuing politics she becomes a consultant. She becomes a consultant for PwC, uh, which is, if you do not know, Price Waterhouse Coopers. It's basically a perfect. You know, the nice, the nice way to describe, <laughs> the nice way to describe it, the way they'll describe it is a, P- uh, uh, advisory services. Right? They do auditing, consulting. They do taxing. They do tax avoidance. Sometimes uh, they do uh, HR. They do firing. You know, like they help. It's EY,
0: it's McKinsey, it's Accenture, Mm -hmm. it's 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 one of the big four
1: accounting firms. And um, so, as we said earlier, I mean, essentially, the advice is to go in the big four, work for, um, work for McKinsey. You know, that's the most ethical thing you could do because you'll get enough money and a career path that will help you make enough money to effectively help as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And there's a
0: quote from a from a Washington Post article um later in the uh, in the New Yorker piece uh by Dylan Matthews which was titled Join Wall Street Save the World and it was all about uh, again the EA type stuff and and there's another quote in here that's just perfect right Uh, quoting from, from Matt wage, um, a student at Princeton who decided instead of pursuing philosophy in grad school, which I mean, good, good choice, um, Mm -hmm. honestly, uh, but he decided he would get a job at a, at the trading street Jane or trading firm Jane street. In other words, become a financier. Um, and why did he decide that? Because as wage tells the Washington post you can pay to provide a, and you can pay to provide and train a guide dog for a blind american which cost about $40,000 but with that same money you could also cure between 400 and 2000 people in developing countries of blindness from glaucoma so no choice no thought about like where your money is going to go to you know and do the most good and so the idea is that you become a financier Well, you can donate many multiple times of $40,000 for your wage and do more good in the world.
1: It's um, really heartwarming stuff, folks.
0: Um, This is another one of the religion uh, analogies here. What they are doing is they're telling people to tithe, but now they are also selling absolution, right? Yeah. you You can cleanse your soul, your everlasting soul, Yes, get your job as a, as a management consultant, as a Wall Street banker, as a Silicon Valley engineer. They used to even say like defense contractor, uh, hedge fund, like they, they used to say that it doesn't matter. And the logic is until they had to, uh, until they had to eventually, uh, give away because it's s- stupid. Um, but their logic was if you're not doing it, someone else will. Mm-hmm. If you don't become a defense contractor, someone else else will. And they might not do uh, really good stuff with that defense contractor wage in the same way that you will. If you don't become a hedge fund um, analyst, someone else will. And they might not do really good stuff with that hedge fund wage in the same way that you will. It's this replacement theory where they abstract away that doesn't matter what the job is in the world because ultimately someone else will do it if you don't do it. Um, and so instead... Uh, you should just maximize the good you can do by getting the highest-paid job. They eventually had to backpedal on that uh, on, on that recommendation because they uh, because it's stupid um, and that <laughs> it. It, it, it's, it's, it's bad logic <laughs> and thinking and it's not how the world works. But it does also betray a fundamental ideological sense of of, of EA, which is that. Uh, It thinks the world is unchangeable, and that the world is completely uh, fungible, and that um, no matter it doesn't there there are a fixed number of defense contractors in the world. You're just swapping out uh, part your Lego blocks for other Lego blocks. There are the world is already structured in a way that is unchangeable. So the best you can do is to. Uh, Not even think about structures and systems, but to act you as an individual, um, an autonomous, utilitarian, calculative individual in the most moral way possible. Don't think about structures. Don't think about systems. Don't think about your own life uh, as a network of relationships and and so on, think about only one thing, which is that utilitarian calculation of cause and effect.
1: And it's and it's funny that they, you know, like you, the whole point of this altruism is supposed to be effective, right? There's a frustration with the inability of philosophers to affect change in the world, and yet, like one of the core premises here that's betrayed by that early backpedaling. I mean, you can backpedal it from inaction, but not in. And, in, and the axioms it has for the philosophy is that there are certain parts of the world you can't change. You have to take advantage of them, right? And so we should, it, it's, I think it's good to take account of what we've noticed thus far about the effective altruistic belief. There's an insistence that you can do good things in fields that are oriented towards good, but that the best way to do good is to earn a lot of money and uh, donate that money. So there's a blind spot, obviously, in this arrangement. There's a blind spot for why certain fields have money. There's a blind spot for the underlying structure of society that prioritizes some types of labor and empowers some types of individuals who are in various fields, right? Uh, There's a blindness for why institutions in society aren't able to amplify the contributions that you might be able to give and instead you have to rely on private actors there's a blind spot for asking what the externalities of going into those other industries where you earn to give are and there's and and as a result we end up coming with like the first sort of articulation of a depolitical movement this idea that politics doesn't really matter Per se. And this is an idea that grows, right? It's, it, this is at this point of EA's development, you can infer it. You can infer that it's a vaguely depoliticized movement or mobilization, but it's, but it grows into something later. But at this point, what you see is that politics as such doesn't matter. Don't be a MP, be a consultant, uh, be a member of an industry that is antagonistic society and to politics and helping to accelerate some of the destabilizing effects of various you know, firms and industries so that you can earn enough money to individually yourself give. This sort of individual strain is, comes on to steroids by the time that we enter this year, right? But then there are some other important convergences that happen. They create the Center for Effective Altruism. He becomes a professor at 28 and 20, uh, thir- uh, 2015. Uh, the marriage, uh, falls apart. He publishes his first book, doing good better. Um, which, uh, the piece writes is an extended case that Westerners were in a situation akin to quote, happy hour where you could either buy yourself a beer for $5, buy someone else a beer for five cents. And then 80 out thousand hours gets accepted into Y Combinator. Silicon Valley's, um, you know, kind of blood vessel into uh, capital uh, in the region. And so
0: do, do you, do you want to, I, I have a, I have a, a one suspicion why uh, it got accepted into Y Combinator and I'm why effective time. altruism has grown so powerful and so well resourced so quickly mm-hmm. because by the time he wrote his 2015 book, Doing Good Better, he had already backpedaled on the get any high paying job possible and give what you can and had instead uh, started to advise and encourage people to quote, take what it's, uh, take what it sees as morally neutral or positive jobs. Quantitative hedge fund trading, uh-huh. management consulting, uh-huh. technology startup. Uh-huh. So 80,000 hours started, you know, these are morally neutral or positive jobs. Let me say that list again. And we're not. <laughs> Quantitative hedge fund trading, management consulting, technology startup. So, in other words, <laughs> take jobs on Wall Street. Uh, take jobs, yo. Know, take jobs at McKinsey. Take jobs in Silicon Valley. Take jobs Valley. at the Pentagon,
1: and, honestly, and Silicon yeah, Valley. Like,
0: but because For, these like, are morally, these are worst
1: morally neutral at best, yeah. morally positive. <laughs> Which is kind it's, and it is really, fun, it is deeply funny that like um, uh, an ethicist is saying these are morally neutral jobs. These are some of the most morally odious jobs that you can <laughs> take, even, <percent>. <laughs> even if, even if. The fields, And as you know, maybe I don't know if we'll get the time to talk to it, but there are a lot of surveys of people's workforces, workforces in these places, right? And in Silicon Valley and in Wall Street, to an extent, depending where you look, you'll find relatively liberal workforces that rival the liberal attitudes of academia, media, entertainment. They are still some of the most or morally odious places to work. Who they, they they thrive precisely when they're taking shit out of everyone else's mouths. Who impose externalities that threaten the entire economy of this country, of the world, of other countries, uh, which encourage and help firms figure out how to evade the law, break the law, poison air, poison water, destroy livelihoods. Why you know it's 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 um. The moral mathematics at here, as you, as time goes on, and as it veers more and more away from politics and encourages a depolitization of how you engage society, becomes like more and more childish in in really important ways, and at the same time, maybe not surprisingly, gains more and more praise, right? Uh, from people who have certain political projects or who have certain like articulations of the world that uh, fall apart upon closer scrutiny. Right. I mean, this is someone who like, even let's say we're being unfair and say we're bashing and making fun and whole and, and holding his feet to the fire in this small account. It's not a, it's not really a small account. I mean, what are the reasons why most people enter or, you know, uh, workforces, like let's say you're in, in someone in a class where it's not in your other people in your class are not typically in this workforce. I mean, a lot of people enter high paying jobs under the belief that this will provide them with some sort of mobility or because they end up being socialized and trained and, and, and onboarded onto that sort of ramp. Right. And there's already a sort of rationalization that they're going to help them and theirs. Right. The idea that intelligently investing. So that you can maximize the amount of good you individually do when the reason that you got there and the things that give you the resources are hurting almost everyone else in the society makes almost no sense. And also is, a, I think, a key part or maybe not a conscious key part, but a part of why the moral logic and mathematics shifts from helping the global poor. To long term visions of helping unborn masses, because it becomes increasingly harder to defend all the shit that effective altruism is articulating for you to do in the present day. It's hard for you to defend working for McKinsey as they help authoritarian governments cover up genocides or, 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 or you know, figure out smart, nimble ways to, uh, you know, effectively surveil populations or corporations or to work with corporations who are surveilling people or unleashing death squads and so on and so forth. Right? It's hard to justify working as some financial oper- uh, operations officer at Coca-Cola, especially if you were there while they sent death squads to Latin American countries. It's hard to justify working for Exxon or working for Enron or working for uh, HSBC or working for some massive financial firm like HSBC as they're laundering money. Like it's hard to do all that in today's world. But if you zoom out, it doesn't matter if you helped uh, f- a, you know, a $140 billion corruption scandal or some shit, it doesn't really matter. You're talking about trillions of people in the future, you know, to step back from that Why Combinator, you know, as Jason points out, accepts them around the time that they're starting to have the contours of what we can expect to be this sort of shift. They have their global summit at the Googleplex. Elon Musk is on one of their panels about artificial intelligence. Quote, I tried to talk to him for five minutes about global poverty and got little interest. Hmm. Okay. Give well moved to San Francisco. Hmm. Okay. Facebook co-founder Dustin Moskovitz and his wife, the former journalist Carrie Tuna, had tasked its new project, later known as Open Philanthropy, with spending down their multi-billion dollar fortune. Open Philanthropy invested in international development and campaigns for broiler chicken welfare and expanded into causes like bail reform. For the first time, McCaskill said, the fledgling experiment felt like a force in the world. Important. Important to note that what's happening in that shift.
0: So I was, I was mistaken. The, the Dustin did not, and Carrie Tuna did not give their fortune to effective altruism the spin down. They gave it to their own thing, open philanthropy, but it's all part of the same, like there's so much overlap in people, ideology, these networks, there's a revolving door, like it's all the same, right? Like it's why uh, these groups suddenly have billions and billions of dollars at their disposal.
1: And so this brings us then, you know, to a shift where we're, you know, starting to think about, you know, there's a little bit of a a zooming in on other groups that they share uh, space with. They share space with Nick Bostrom, a philosopher who's created uh, the Future of Humanity Institute. If you've read him, he's very concerned about artificial intelligence. He's concerned about future humans and believes in more or less we should construct or prioritize visions and and projects that increase the well-being of those people.
0: Yeah, I mean he 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 coined Nick Bostrom coined the idea of existential risk or ex- yes. risk right, which is what like uh it, which is the idea of the you know I think he even coined the thought experiment of the of the AI paperclip right like well if you task an AI to produce as many paperclips as it can but it takes that to its logical conclusion and begins to turn every atom in the universe into paperclips you know like that kind of shit right like so you know he it's all these thought experiments based on existential risk a lot of it technologically induced he also loves he's another one of these 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 philosophers love um, fairy tales. I think it's one reason why their ideas are so seductive is because they package them up, sometimes quite explicitly as fairy tales, sometimes more the veneer of a thought experiment. But like a fairy tale, like a grim fairy tale, they have very simple moralities for children, right? Yeah. yeah. And but, but, but what we see is a lot of children who have a lot of money, and therefore, a lot of influence have taken these things as uh, as as brilliant, as truth, as their ideology. If you go to Vitalik Buterin's Twitter page, for example, look at his bio. There's like one thing in his bio. It's a link to a YouTube video. The YouTube video, it, it's the Fable of the Dragon Tyrant. The fable of the dragon tyrant is an essay by Nick Bostrom, a very Gosh. poorly no. argued <laughs> fairy tale about the moral necessity oh, for hu- to uh, research human longevity. Right? It's it's a the fa- the dragon tyrant is quite literally a stand-in for death, and it tells the story of a civilization that develops over ages. And, you know, over long periods of time and is, you know, conquered by this dragon tyrant that lives on a mountain and demands increasingly greater sacrifices of people every single day to this dragon tyrant. And, you know, the, the civilization, it, it, it starts devoting all of its resources and time and energy to developing greater and greater science and technology to defeat the dragon tyrant. Blah, blah, blah. It's all about the moral necessity. To, uh, create, to, to defeat death. That's what it's about. And this, I love this. Vitalik Buterin used to have a link to the essay, the textual essay um, for The Fable of the Dragon Tyrant. He has since changed it to a YouTube link of a, uh, a webcomic uh, video retel- like uh, narrative story of The <laughs> Fable of the Dragon Tyrant. with showing you again, who this is aimed at children who cannot, who will not read an essay. So it must be a, a web comic on YouTube. Um, but regardless, all that is to say is that these people from, you know, William McCaskill to Vitalik Buterin and everyone in between are fucking captivated by fairy tales.
1: And I think I'm going to read an extended passage from here, from the, from the profile because I think it hits on some of the points that we were arguing and it develops them to the next point that we'll, we can lift off from. They're kind of reflecting on the origins or the influences on effective altruism, one of them being the late moral philosopher Derek Parfit, right, who was an academic. So the passage goes, Parfit believed that our inherited moral theories were constructed on religious foundations and aspired to build a comprehensive secular moral framework. Effective altruism, in that spirit, furnishes an all-encompassing worldview. It can have an ecclesiastical flavor, and early critics observed that the movement seemed to be in the business of selling philanthropic indulgences for the original sin of privilege. It has a priestly class, was posted on EA's online forum, often received as encyclicals. In the place of mass, EA's Endure 3-Hour Podcasts. There's an emphasis <laughs> on humility. I
0: mean, to be fair, TMK
1: <laughs> listeners do that too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not a cult, not a cult. <laughs> um, there's, an, there's an emphasis on humility and a commandment to sacrifice for the sake of the neediest. Since its inception, GiveWell has directed the donation of more than a billion dollars. The Against Malaria Foundation alone estimates that its work to date will save 165,000 lives. There have been more than 70,000 Giving What We Can pledges, which total almost $3 billion. In an alternate world, a portion of that sum would presumably have been spent on overpriced tapas in San Francisco's Mission District. As effective altruism became a global phenomenon, what had been treated as a fringe curiosity became subject to more sustained criticism. A panel convened by the Boston Review described EAs as having cast their lot with the status quo. Though their patronage might help to alleviate some suffering on the margins, they left the international machine intact. As hard-nosed utilitarians, they bracketed values like justice, fairness, and equality that didn't lend themselves to spreadsheets. The Stanford political uh, scientist Rob Reich wrote, Plato identified the best city as that in which philosophers were the rulers. Effective altruists see the best state of affairs, I think, as that in which good maximizing technocrats are in charge. Perhaps it is possible to call this a politics, technocracy, but this politics is suspicious of or rejects the form of politics to which most people attain enormous value, democracy. The Ethiopian-American AI scientist Timnit Gebru has condemned EAs for acting as though they are above such structural issues as racism and colonialism. Few of these appraisals were new. Many were indebted to the philosopher Bernard Williams, who noted that utilitarianism might, in certain historical moments, look like, quote, the only coherent alternative to a dilapidated set of values, that it was ultimately bloodless and simple-minded. Williams held that the philosophy alienated a person from the source of his actions and his own convictions from what we might think of as moral integrity. Its means and rationality could seem untrustworthy. Someone who seeks justification for the impulse to save the life of a spouse instead of that of a stranger, Williams famously wrote, has had one thought too many.
0: I mean, exactly. That, that, that's exactly right. We now now to be fair, we can say, well, what about all the good that they've done, Ed? They have donated, you know, on the on the scale of billions of dollars that may not otherwise have been donated. Doesn't that outweigh? Uh, Any simple mindedness of the ideology, any, uh, spuriousness or, um, uh, untrustworthy or otherwise ulterior motives of its adherence in, you know, uh, Wall Street and the consulting, uh, in sector and Silicon Valley. Doesn't all of that outweigh any of that, Ed? We could say, well, you know, maybe. Again, we, we also don't know for sure. Uh, you know we we can quibble about the we could quibble on their own battleground about the effectiveness right well is 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 a is an economic approach in terms of quality adjusted life here's really the best way to think about how to do good in the world right like well well if you didn't do it surely somebody else would have done it by your own logic right like you know we can think we can quibble about it at the, on their own arguments but i think what really reveals what this is about um, is, on one hand, is that, uh, is that idea of a, a, of a complete lack of structural analysis, right? They're not interested in changing the world as such. They're interested in making the world as it exists somewhat better, adding more qualies or utilitons to the the global, led, the, the, the global ledger of a world that is otherwise unchangeable so we can we i think we can and should argue on that regard but we can and also should argue on what it has become which is this idea of long-termism this idea, and it's an idea based you know we mentioned nick bostrom it's an idea that actually comes from nick bostrom uh which is you know, to, uh, to quote from a really, really great, um, uh, you know, uh, review essay in the London Review of Books from 2015 by Amia Srinivasan, who is, was a, was a colleague of, uh, William McCaskill's, another Oxford philosopher, actually, uh, 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 um, and she wrote this really fantastic review essay of, of William's first book. Um, In 2015, which I think also shows us that the idea of long-termism, which, you know, for listeners, you may have seen, for example, Elon Musk recently tweeted out William McCaskill's New York Times uh, uh, op-ed saying, this is the closest thing to my own personal philosophy. It's been celebrated. Long-termism has been celebrated by many others. Probably won't have time to get to it in this episode. Um, this is this was definitely a, a should be a two-parter, um, or you know, rather more so a, a well for us to return to um, than a straight two-parter in this regard. But people like Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX and major crypto billionaire, I got whiplash when he showed up in this New Yorker piece <laughs> out of nowhere. I right. said, "Huh?" Uh, but you know, it's these people who are adherents to long-termism. Sam Bankman-Fried, as you know. founded and funded this thing called the Future Fund, which is about kind of creating initiatives for long-termism. Jeff Bezos has that 10,000-year clock that he's building in a mountain, right? Like all of these people are obsessed with long-termism. What is that, right? It's in a way based on uh, an idea from Nick Bostrom, and I'll quote from Amia Mia LRB article that really lays it out. An existential risk, as defined by the Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom, who popularized the concept, is an event that would permanently and drastically curtail humanity's potential. Total annihilation is the obvious case. Given the number of people who might live in the future, if not for such an event, Bostrom estimates the figure at 10 to the 52nd power assuming that we master interstellar travel and the uploading of human minds to computers, the expected value of preventing an X risk dwarfs the value of say curing cancer or preventing genocide. This is so even if the probability of being able to do anything about an X risk is is vanishingly small, even if Bostrom's 10 to the 52nd power estimate has only a 1% chance of being correct, the expected value of reducing an x risk by one billionth of one billionth of a percentage point is still a 100 billion times greater than the value of saving the lives of a billion people living now so it turns out to be better to try to prevent some hypothetical x risk even with an extremely remote chance of being able to do so than to help actual living people and x risk could take many forms a meteor crash, catastrophic global warming, plague. But the one that effective altruists like to worry about most is the intelligence explosion or artificial intelligence taking over the world and destroying humanity. Now, this is the idea that William McCaskill's new book, What We Owe the Future, is about. It's about this idea that we should be acting now in any way possible to secure The future to secure a better, longer life for more people that tend to the 52nd power and incomprehensible number like we are cognitively unable to comprehend a number that large. But that's what we must be acting towards, right? It's securing a safer, better, longer future for all of those potential people. And it doesn't matter how we do that now what matters is that we do it for the future it's the ultimate uh means justify you know ends justify the means whatever means possible uh it's the ultimate logical conclusion of emotion time and space do not matter in moral decisions right uh it's it is that ultimate logical conclusion that Rather than shy away from and begin to question the foundations of your ideology because it forces you to confront and embrace a conclusion such as this, they have doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down on it uh, as, being, uh, as being true, as being something that we must act on in, uh, now, right? This is also why someone like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos Uh, Love this so much uh, is because it justifies them doing anything they want now Tesla SpaceX Blue Origin, whatever 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 anything now because the uh, Even if there's a billionth of a billionth percentage that it uh, secures the future for that potential interstellar population of 10 to the 52nd power well, then it, it far outweighs any cost now, any opportunity cost, any resource expenditure, anything now. In other words, it's the ultimate justification, the unquestionable justification for their power, for their exercise of power. It's also no coincidence, as Amiya Srinivasan points out, that... Um, one of the that the primary way to avoid artificial the X risk of artificial intelligence explosion, the singularity, is more investment in AI. Uh, you know, which directly benefits the people in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, since all of this stuff with uh, EA and long termism has been happening in the last few weeks, a number of big proponents of EA and long termism have been saying. I've been on Twitter with massive threads talking about how things like Uh climate change don't matter. I I I saw one calling climate change a dodged bullet. Uh because in 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 comparison to artificial intelligence, the singularity, the intelligence explosion, nothing matters uh compare you know in relative comparison to that. Uh it's 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 truly, truly insane. And it's this is not a recent development you know, we talked about how like, you know, uh, 80,000 hours was accepted into long, uh, Y Combinator in 2015, how, you know, Google hosted that three-day effective altruism global conference in 2015. Nick Bostrom has been talking about this for long before 2015. This is the, like, like, the way it tends to be cast now, like in the New Yorker profile and a lot of the other interviews and stuff around the new book is that this is a new direction for effective altruism rather than something that has uh, been there from the very beginning and was all you know a political economy that's been there from the very beginning and a logical uh, conclusion that has been there from the very beginning.
1: You know, this then leads us to the question, you know, of course, like it just happens, like as I was talking about before and as I've talked about with with Jathan, you know, I, I think a good way to think about this is like, well, there are a few ways, right? There's the, do- the dovetailing with the, the status quo is the reaffirmation of elites and arguing that, you know, um, society run by people who just happen to look sound and think like me yeah. is... The best sort of society, you know? Except
0: Um, they don't look, sound, or think like you. Yeah. Uh, They (laughs) tend to be overwhelmingly white and upper class. (laughs) Right.
1: The you was doing a lot of work there. Um, I would be surprised if a single person in the effective altruist inner circle looked like me or came from any sort of background similar to me. But I, I think it is very clear, you know, if you step outside of what ea is early you know what ea is proposing how it was remo- how it's been moving and developing it's it's lurch towards the extermination of long term risk um partially motivated i argue because of its inability to articulate a compelling moral vision that also included politics and instead has landed on a long term one that kind of confuses itself with politics or is so long term that it has the appearance of politics since our politics is so You know, broken. These are people who by their own admission would sell out, throw down the river, most of the humans living now, if it meant that they could ensure people living in the future would live well. But there's no real answer about what that actually means, right? And I think and it's and it's kind of it's not an accident, right? I mean, because for them, I mean, we've seen this before, as you talked about, Jathan, right? We've seen this with with the hippies of the 1970s, you know, as a more recent example, where it's just people who are uninterested in creating a world that is fundamentally that is actually better and risking something, um, you know, whether it's some sort of political or social outcome, because they're and, and instead saying, "Well, no, we're going to risk it all by ensuring that we shave 0.00001 percent off the risk of a of a pandemic killing all of humanity or nuclear weapons killing all of humanity." Whoa. Well, what are the what are the ways in which you would do that? You know, well, some of the ways you might do that is to try to reach, start to create a different t- type of civilization, right? Instead of just shoveling money around, what what charity is going to allow us to disarm uh, nuclear weapons from the major powers, from United States, Russia, China, and Europe, and Israel, and South, and you know, not South Africa. i was, got my wires crossed there, but. Not, not, they tried, but uh, didn't get it. But um, you know what? What charity is going to do that? You know what charity is going to ensure that there's no uh, you know weaponization of viruses that get th- uh, deployed against other countries. What charity is going to, like, Like seriously, what charity is going to ensure that climate change doesn't happen? Again, of course, like, they don't have answers for this, so they shifted to the long-term visions of artificial intelligence and, as- and ex term risk, because these also happen, coincidentally, to be projects of people who are interested in demobilizing the masses, because they're interested in forms of politics wh- that are hierarchical, coercive, extractive, authoritarian, right? Like, it is amazing to me that the effective altruists don't understand that they've thrown in their lot with the group of society that agrees with their outcomes, but d- d- the methods to get there are abhorrent, right? The world that Thiel wants and Manicus Moldberg and Elon Musk, right, is a world that is almost certainly going to look be run along very strict racial class or class-based hierarchies forms of domination these people are not convinced that liberalism was a good idea you are not the world that you are making if it's going to be better for trillions of people what is the cost In which it's going to be better for trillions of people it's going to be better for trillions of people because trillions of people will be on the other side of an apartheid regime you know like it in but even then you're just getting into really silly territory because at the end of the day right trillions of people are going to exist and their existence does depend on us but there are also people who are alive right now at this very moment. What type of world are we building for them? What type of, what will our, if you're really concerned about what future generations will think of us, what will they think of us if we allow people, children today to starve just so that they can be born in a world where they in some, where the domination is by some God emperor king who's descended from Theel? I mean, it's just, it's, it's insane. It's just childish and I can't, I, I, I kind of am amazed by the childishness, right? This is a dude who is an Oxford professor. who's under the impression they are rigorous thinkers. Why is he throwing in his lot <laughs> so tightly with it? Unless of course he agrees with them and thinks that's how the world should be run, which is even more scary if that's the case.
2: I'd venture to say that that probably is the case. You've got like this group of this, like this cult of sycophants that follows all these rich assholes around Anybody mentions their name on social media, they're there to scent for them at the moment's notice. People see something like that and realize, you know what, Gre- being greedy is good. I can make a difference in the world if I'm greedy, just like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or any of these fucking assholes. They could honestly, with the amount of money that they have, could solve a lot of problems in the world if they were willing to let go of their purse strings. Mm. But they don't. They think that they've given just a little bit of money that it's going to make a difference, and that's all they need to feel better about their wealth.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the indulgences. But it is a movement that is absolutely, uh, like, just completely made up by cynical bullshitters, useful idiots, and moral zealots. And the, the hard part is, is that you, it's often really difficult to tell them apart, right? Although in reading this, I am I, I, at first I was wondering, like, what is William McCaskill? Which of those three things? Reading this, I'm quite convinced he's a, you know, he's a moral zealot, right? Like he, he is a true believer, but to the regard where it, he does not shy away from the, the insane um, logical conclusions and also trade-offs. I mean, there is just, we need to wrap up, but there is one point here that I think really just also crystallizes what so much of the EA stuff is about, even setting aside the people who aren't in it to get rich or to make themselves, you know, absolve themselves of their sins, right? The people like, I think, William McCaskill and Toby Ord who started it, who are really about taking this vow of poverty, right? Or using themselves as human tools uh, to do as maximum good as possible, right? Optimizing themselves in that way. You know, it it causes them to reach uh, crazy conclusions. Like, for example, if you assign—I'm uh, quoting from the New Yorker piece—if you assigned an arbitrarily high value to an uh, effective altruist's hourly output, it was easy to justify luxuries such as laundry services for undergraduate groups. Or as one person put it to me wincing, retreats to teach people how to run retreats. The Center for Effective Altruism, this is me now, the Center for Effective Altruism also has regular, like, you know, every meal is like a vegan catered meal. Like, you know, William McCaskill has multiple assistants, right? So in this course of a vow of poverty, it, it's really easy to justify surrounding yourselves by other people's labor because their labor is not worth as much as your labor in the in terms of like its contribution to utilitons in the world uh, ledger, right? So now all of these things that take your time feeding yourself, clothing yourself, cleansing yourself, uh, you know, uh, uh, cleaning yourself—all of it, like that's all time that's taking away from your uh yo know, you as a as an ultimate optimized EA your ability to do good in the world. This is authoritarian decadence, right? This is some Pope shit, right? Like uh that's what it is. There it was it's also really crystallized by another piece from the New Yorker, uh, another paragraph, and then we'll have to end it there because I, I I have to get going, unfortunately, or this would be a two hour long episode. Um uh, there's another piece where it says McCaskill was newly a force in the world. For all EA's aspirations to stringency, its numbers can sometimes seem arbitrarily plastic. McCaskill has a gap between his front teeth, and he told close friends that he was now thinking of getting braces because studies showed that more classically handsome people were more impactful fundraisers. A friend of his told me, quote, we were like, dude, if you want to have the gap closed, it's okay. It felt like he has subsumed his own humanity to become a vehicle for the saving of humanity. Again, this, uh, it, it's absurd, right? I don't think he's doing it cynically where he's like, aha, now I can get braces because the center will pay for it. I think he is so blinded by his own moral zealotry that that argument, that logic made perfect sense in his mind. Right, like the calculation he did made perfect sense, um, but instead, you know, what we have here, and it really perfectly encapsulates it, is what we have here is a movement based on hyper individualistic, technologically solutionist, capitalist savior complex, but taken to a a, a, a heretofore unseen level of extremity. It's it's really it's anthropologically fascinating
1: to behold politically abhorrent to behold yes and it's a it is a concerning development i mean there is an ongoing sort of degradation and deterioration of our society that's going on not just in terms of like the ecological niche that we live in but the moral the moral the, mor- the basic morality right and the and the and it feels Like deeply abhorrent and evil in some ways, to articulate a philosophy that I am sure soon enough will out right advocate for abandoning near term political and social outcomes if they come into conflict with long term risk uh, reduction. These people would would set the world on fire, right? So that like future generations could be born in the ashes. Like it does not make sense to me. And frankly, future generations, as numerous as they may be, if you are going to deploy them in this sort of way, then I feel like the, the logical position is to be against that, right? The logical, the logical position, if you, is to defend, to, to defend future, you have to be against long-termism. Because not even to say that you are against future generations, but you are against using them. To justify the status quo and preserving the international system as it is, and 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 sidestepping, as the piece points out, and as a, as a flaw in his book, other reviews have pointed out, like in the Boston Review, the very real possibility that some of the things that would be excellent for future generations make no sense for us to pursue now. It makes it makes almost no sense in the broken, deeply immoral world we have. Where there are nuclear weapons, where there's climate change that is collapsing the ecology, where most of the political decisions are decided by madmen who have had their brains rotted by the amount of wealth they have, it makes no decision for artificial intelli- uh, general intelligence to exist in that sort of world. We let little chatbots let loose and they become racist in 10 minutes. Why would we create digital minds that don't have bodies to limit them? And, you know, like, it's insane. It is insane. That is a sort of thing where it would be great for the trillions of people who live in the future to have AGI, I'm sure. It would be a nightmare for us. And there, there's a long list of other examples, right? In a lot of instances, it would be better for us to simply not make a thing or to ban a thing until we improve the base material conditions of this world and until we clean up some of the clutter that has resulted from capitalism rotting our morals and our values and how we relate to one another before we develop these things. But that's stagnation or that's regression or that's, you know, um, the enemy of progress. And so in long-term it's, viewpoints it's not okay but you know there's going to be a tension and it's going to be a surprise to some but very obvious to everyone else what's going to happen when the tension emerges partly because of the ideology itself and partly because of who they surround themselves with right if you surround yourself with Peter Thiel's and Elon Musk of the world what's going to happen when there's a when you have to choose between the near term and the long term you have to choose between like preserving the ecology and preserving like a digital cornucopia for trillions of people in the future who you will never meet.
0: Well, uh, to quote John Maynard Keynes, in the long term, <laughs> or in the long run we are all dead. That sounds like the future's problem to me. <laughs> 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 Uh, well, with that, I mean, I I hope to God this is not a well we have to go back to because I want this I want this EA shit to just shrivel up and.
1: Oh no, we will, dude. I'm going to. I hate it. I hate it so bad. I bought the books. I'm going to read them and I will write long ass reviews about them. I've decided it in the course of us doing this. Good. I'm just I'm deep, i deep. I find these abhorrent positions because
0: there's a lot more to be said. I mean, I was gonna say I hope we don't have to go back to this well. I hope it just like shrivels up on the vine and dies. Oh yes, but we're not that lucky yeah uh, unfortunately, yeah. Um, I think this is gonna be around for 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 a while longer now. um and so uh, I suspect this is another this is this is something we will revisit. Um, in, 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 the future, probably not in the, as long term as I would <laughs> hope. Uh, <laughs> so, with that, I do have to get running. So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up this episode. Um, I'm saving y'all from a, a, a two and a half hour, three hour TMK banger right you now. Are, you are. I, I got a meeting to get to. Uh, so with that, thank you all, uh, uh, dear comrades for subscribing. Appreciate your support as always. Stick with us. And uh we'll see you next time. Later.
1: Adios. If I am happy, you say you're happy. Yes.